Welcome to Biohacking with Brittany. Thank you for tuning in to another episode this year. I am slowly ramping up back to two episodes a week. I promise I will get there in the next week or so. I am on the East Coast, just north of Toronto this week. So recording and publishing has been a little off, but we will definitely get back to doing episodes every Tuesday and Friday, like I promised. And today's episode is all about mental health. This one is very interesting. I feel like mental health has become something that is less and less taboo, which is wonderful. And I still feel like there is so much to go. I think there's so much for us to learn. I think there is so many barriers that we still need to break down, almost kind of like women's health, actually. It's like we've we've made a lot of strides, but there's still a long way to go. And this episode is just another piece of the puzzle that helps bring awareness to mental health problems and issues and struggles beyond the basic, beyond the basic struggles that we might kind of see in mainstream media or we might hear about. So I feel like we kind of hear a lot about, I guess there's certain, there's certain ones like certain um, adult issues, right? So things like postpartum depression or midlife crisis or social anxiety. So these were like buzzwords that we kind of understand now and are kind of more commonplace. What we don't talk about a lot is the people who kind of fall outside of those ranges. So the really young folk and then the older folk as well. So really young folk is a big focus of the the podcast today. We're talking teenagers, we're talking kids. What does it look like to have mental struggles as a person who's, you know, under the age of 18. It's it's like a it's such an interesting concept because when I was in that age bracket, this was not a conversation. This was not something we talked about in school. This was not something I talked about with friends or family at all. Like there were different ways that we would word things, I guess, like maybe you're stressed about a test or something or you have anxiety about your friends or the person you're dating potentially. I don't know. Like there was that kind of narrative, but there wasn't really the narrative of chronic illness, chronic mental health struggles. Like day in and day out, I have anxiety going to school or I have depression. It's it's hard for me to get out of bed. I'm sleeping way more than the average teenager should. So the average teenager sleeps about 10 hours a night. And so anything you know, above and beyond that chronically could be a sign of depression or, or less sleep, right? So we, and we talk about that in that, in the episode today of where kids kind of fall on those parameters. And it's just so interesting as I navigate stepping into motherhood, you know, soon, whenever that is, and thinking about how to raise kids where mental health is not a taboo topic. So, what does it actually look like though? Like I know it's easy for me to say this on a podcast and for you to listen and be like, yeah, let's make mental health not taboo and like everyone understand it. But in reality, like what does that actually look like day to day? So if you have kids, like how do you create a safe space in your home that kid who presents with anxiety can say to mom or dad, I'm feeling anxious about X, Y, and Z. And the response is, 
wow, okay, let's talk more about that. I'd love to hear about it. What can we do about it? You know, I don't like, I don't even know what the, the right response is, but like, how do you create that safe environment where kids can come to you and express those feelings? They have the language for it. They can name it, right? Like that's such a big part of any type of health issue or struggle is like putting a name on it and identifying what it is. And it's much harder to do that when we're talking mental health. When we have something like, you know, like prediabetes, for example, we have a bunch of blood work and biomarkers that can present this landscape that represents prediabetes. And we can tell maybe with like blood sugar irregulation, irregulations, cravings, that type of thing that we might have. However, when we have mental health struggles, identifying it is really identifying feelings. And a lot of us don't really know how to talk about our feelings or our emotions. So maybe before we even get to this point of talking about mental health, it's really starting with the basics of like, what are your feelings? What are your emotions? How do you feel when we do this? When we go to this family member's house for Christmas, do you feel safe? Do you feel okay? Do you get nervous? Do you feel uncomfortable sitting at the big kids table? I don't know, whatever it is. It's like, so I think maybe taking it a step back to feelings and emotions is a good place to start. And I'm just totally like thinking out loud what I'm talking right now. But the other thing I that comes to mind with this is I actually saw on, I think it was Pottery Barn Kids. I know there's like a bunch of these, but I think it was on Pottery Barn Kids. and. On there, there was this wooden slate, let's say, like a piece of wood. And there were probably like eight, maybe 10 emotions made out of these little wooden blocks put onto this wooden slate. And you, I guess you just like have it on the floor, you have it on the wall, that type of thing. And in the middle is a dial. So it kind of looks like a clock, but it's like emotions. And I guess the point of something like this is from a very young age is to help kids start to identify their emotions. So say a kid is reacting in a certain way and they don't know the word angry. They don't know the word frustrated or nervous. They don't understand that yet. But maybe what you can do is you can give them something like that, like a tool like that. And on each little block of emotions, it's a face, right? And it's it's a color. So you can kind of picture what this would look like. There's an angry face. There's a person like you know, their brows are knitted together and the the circle is red. I can, I can link it in the show notes if anyone wants to buy it. And the face is red. And so like, I think it would be easier for a kid to visually see that face and be like, oh yeah, that's, that, that is how I feel right now. Right. And so maybe having a safe space for mental health in a home and in a family starts with a very young age with identifying emotions and feelings, and then growing into that. Now, there could be people listening to this and and thinking, that is so extra, that's so silly, that's so millennial. It's not necessary. Toughen up, who cares, whatever, you're fine. But I would argue that that way of thinking is what has resulted in so many adults now having severe mental health problems. And I don't just mean anxiety, depression. I mean like suicidal ideation, 
meaning they can't get out of bed, they can't work, they don't know how to have a relationship with somebody. Tons of stuff like that. Tons and tons of stuff. They don't know how to interview for a job. They don't know how to maintain eye contact. Like, so I would argue that the that telling people to toughen up and not talk about it is what previous generations did. And I don't think it worked. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. We're moving past that. We're trying something else and we're trying with an open dialogue. And we get into this in this episode, which I love because it's something that I haven't broached before. And I think it's really, really important. And then on the flip side of that, what we also talk about is the elderly population. So when I'm talking elderly population, I'm talking, you know, 60 plus people who are just more experienced at life, simply. And we talk about how to navigate these tough situations when you see your parents going through mental health struggles. And I have been there. My husband has been there. My close friends have been there. And this is really, really hard. And and we talk about it on this episode in depth because it's such a different dynamic than raising a kid, right? When you're dealing with elder, elderly populations, it's a lot of can you teach an old dog new tricks vibe? Can you explain something new to them and them grasp onto it and go for it? I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if you can. Maybe not with everybody, but yeah, we de- we definitely get into that and kind of some tactic tactics and tools around that on what you should do if you're somebody who is facing that. So. Lots of goodies in this episode. Unfortunately, our episode got cut short a little bit because the power went out because of the snowstorm. So I, you'll kind of notice that, but that's okay. There's still so much goodness in the 45 minutes that we did have together. And I really, really appreciate Evan coming on the podcast. He's doing great things, going across the country, presenting for different schools, talking to students one-on-one you know, really being on the ground, understanding what's going on with the mental health in, you know, American society today. And we obviously also talk about what you can do. So mental health biohacks, things that we can implement, things like that. So enjoy this podcast episode. If you haven't already, my Baby Steps course is coming out really soon. This is my optimizing preconception health course for both men and women. I really encourage you to get on the wait list. So everybody on the wait list, first of all, gets access to the course before everybody else. Secondly, you get a discount. It's going to be hefty. I haven't decided what it's going to be yet, but it will be hefty. And there might be a couple of other bonuses added in there as well. I think there's there's over 100 people on the wait list now, but I really, really suggest you get on there. It's going to be launched in February for the wait list which is really exciting. And this is everything that I have done and also have taught clients on how to prepare your body for pregnancy, how to optimize conception, not be reactive to when you can't get pregnant, although it is for those people as well. But how do we optimize our bodies before that time? How do you have the highest egg quality possible? How do you regulate your menstrual cycle? so that you're ovulating every single month on time, which increases your chances of getting pregnant. How do you increase your partner's sperm count, your sperm quality, motility, everything like that? So we go through my Baby Steps 90-Day Cleanse, which is fabulous. And honestly, it was what I was looking for. 
and it's just got so many gems in it. There are worksheets, everything like that. So go to my website, get on the wait list. The special, I've already said this, but the discount will only be for those people on the wait list because that's just kind of how these things work. So please check that out. And a shout out to Bioptimizers. I love the people at Bioptimizers. They're great. And I actually feature some of their products in my Baby Steps course because they are so good. So every single day I take their magnesium and probiotics and digestive enzymes. And I think that's it. Yes, sometimes there's sleep aid. And they also have a fabulous protein powder. I was actually looking at it today. It's berry flavored. And that's the one that my husband uses when he makes protein shakes. So I love Bioptimizers. They served over 450,000 customers last year in one year alone, which is nuts. So shout out to them. I really, really recommend their products. I think they are the best on the market. They have the best magnesium I have ever seen. And as a nutritionist, I feel like that means a lot. So enjoy this podcast episode. You can find all the information in the show notes and message me on Instagram if you have any questions. And I will catch you next week for another episode. Welcome to Biohacking with Brittany. Thank you for tuning into another episode today. This is a place where we talk about optimal health and cutting edge insights into your health. And that is exactly what we are going to cover today as well. I have Evan Transu joining me, aka Detective Ev, which is such a cute name on the show. And he is a functional diagnostic nutrition graduate, and he really transforms lives through this holistic perspective. So we are going to talk all about the gut-brain connection. We're going to talk about biohacking for mental health, the importance of light therapy, chronic illness, all sorts of things. So Evan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love any opportunity to share information, stories, all the above. So let's do it. Absolutely. So I know your story a little bit about how you and your mom were kind of struggling on your own health journeys. And then you decided to study functional diagnostic nutrition. And that kind of transformed how you looked at health and also for your mother as well. So how did you even come to that point of deciding, hey, let me go and study this topic and see what it can do for us? Sure. So this is at least conceptually similar to many of the stories that I've heard in the space in so much that it's not something that I set out to do as a young person. I didn't have a goal of this at 15 years old. It was something that chose me because if I didn't figure this out, uh, life was not going to happen the way that I wanted it to. And so the long or the short of the long story is that at five years old, I started accumulating different symptoms and diseases. And at five, it wasn't like the worst thing in the world. It's not like childhood leukemia or something. It was just, okay, this is weird. You're getting migraines, you're getting panic attacks on and off. But if I looked at the total percentage of time that I actually spent feeling unwell in a month, we might be talking less than 5%. And so especially as a five-year-old, you don't like it when you feel bad. And then the rest of the time, you're back to playing and having fun and not really thinking about the fact that you don't feel well sometimes. Well, as time went on, these symptoms kept stacking. And like I said, the disease states kept stacking to the point that at the age of 18, I actually then had seven different diagnosed conditions 
all of which I was being told were somehow separated other than the mental health ones. Like everything else was somehow separated. None of these had anything to do with one another. And I'm not a medical professional at the time. I haven't gone to college. I'm 18. I don't know anything about this stuff. But what ended up happening, Brittany, is, and I don't mean to ever be dramatic with it, but it really is what occurred. I got a diagnosis of something called Meniere's disease. And I got this diagnosis after a really terrible part of my life where I I kind of already alluded to this. Part of my story was mental health stuff. I was not taking a holistic approach. I wasn't taking any approach to healing my mental health issues when I was a young person. And I ended up not graduating high school because of it. I got drug usage and I made it about 17 days into my senior year of high school before I got kicked out, arrested. I spent my 18th birthday on house arrest. I mean, it was a mess. And long again, long story short, I actually ended up getting into some really positive things uh, quite quickly after all this happened. So I went from getting arrested to six months later, I was around people who were promoting and reading personal development books, setting goals for themselves. And I found myself very attracted and attached to these people very early on into our relationship together. And so things were actually moving in the right direction. But then these symptoms of Meniere's disease started. And the reason that those two connect is because for the first time in literally what was 13 years, I felt that my life was getting better. And then these symptoms occurred. And Meniere's disease is an inner ear disorder. It's characterized by very extreme bouts of vertigo to the point that many people with the condition will end up losing their license involuntarily because they're not allowed to drive because the vertigo can be so bad. You will eventually, for most people with it, lose hearing in one or both ears. And I already had measured hearing loss. The ENT, ear, nose, throat specialist, um, actually measured that. And it just sucked. And so the first thing I did was go on Google, like anyone who gets a new diagnosis does in today's world. And the first thing that I saw on Google was suicide support forums for people dealing with Meniere's disease. And what that was implying, if that isn't clear, that some people that were living chronically with the condition felt so bad that they were in these forums to, I don't, I don't mean this in a funny way in any sense, I can't think of a better phrase this time, but to like literally talk them off the ledge. Like, hey, your life's still worth it. Don't take life. And remember, I'm feeling better for the first time. I'm getting out of the depression. I'm getting out of a lot of the anxiety. And I'm like, what? So now I have this incurable disease that I was just told I'll need lifelong medication for. I'm going to lose my damn hearing and need a surgery one day. It wasn't really a choice to get into this natural stuff and functional medicine stuff. I needed to open my horizons to different options. Otherwise, I felt like my life was basically over. And the next thing I searched was something along the lines of how to deal with Meniere's disease naturally. Now, again, I can't stress this enough. I know nothing about natural medicine at the time. I don't know what a naturopathic doctor is. I don't know what functional medicine is. No one in my family does this. This was probably just desperation mixed with common sense. I'm like, well, I don't want to take a medication for the rest of my life. Is there something I can do naturally? Let's see what happens. And the recommendations for people with Meniere's disease were salt modification. So one of the things that you can do to manage the symptoms, if you control the salt intake that you have, it can actually reduce the bouts of vertigo. Now, I don't believe that you should have to reduce salt long term to actually deal with the symptoms of this condition. But the point is, it actually worked a little bit. And I was like, okay. If I can manage this to any degree with nutrition, then what else am I missing? And so I studied at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition a couple of years later. I started using myself as an experiment. I was eating organic. I tried vegan. I tried vegetarian. I tried paleo. I tried keto. 
Um, and that eventually evolved into getting involved with functional diagnostic nutrition. So I'm sorry for such a long-winded answer. I promise all of them won't be that way, but that's just the context to kind of paint the picture of, I never asked for this, didn't necessarily want to do this at the time. I was in a position where I felt my back was up against the wall that I either figure this out or I'm going to be living with a condition where most people with it apparently want to take their own life. I couldn't accept that for the next 60, 70 years. I had to figure something else out and thank God I did. January is here. Can you believe it? How are you doing with your new year's goals and resolutions? Mine are pretty easy to focus on my well-being. And we all know that the foundation of well-being is a good night's sleep. So if I could do just one thing to improve my sleep and overall well-being, it is taking the number one mineral for that, which also helps me personally on so many levels, I can't even fully describe it. Yes, I'm talking about magnesium. Actually, I'm talking about that magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers. This product has seven different types of magnesium in it, which is involved in over 300 enzymatic reactions in the body. Pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded when you take magnesium, from the quality of your sleep, to your brain function, to your mood, metabolism, stress levels, everything. And let's face it, even if your 2024 resolution is not to focus on your health, as it is mine, how are you really going to be able to achieve your goals if you're not sleeping well and if you're stressed out? You honestly need magnesium. So get the Bioptimizers Full Spectrum Magnesium. It is my favorite. I take one every single day. And you can go to my website with it, which is bioptimizers.com slash biohackingbrittany and use my discount code biohackingbrittany to get the biggest discount possible, which I'm super excited for you. So that's bioptimizers.com slash biohackingbrittany and my code is biohackingbrittany as well. And that will get you a big discount off of magnesium and all of their other products as well. So enjoy that. And I hope your New Year's resolutions and goals are going well. Yeah, I love that. It's it's interesting how solutions kind of find you in that way. You know, I mean, the amount of times I've spent researching things and just it's so fascinating now being able to use the internet for it and being able to have access to alternative therapies. You know, it's just so much better than it used to be. So I'm glad that you found that and that you kind of just switched paths in healing. So what were kind of the most pivotal moments or discoveries that really transformed your approach to health, maybe during your new program or afterwards that you learned from from studying functional diagnostic uh, nutrition? Sure. So it went from what many people uh, listening to a podcast like this might even consider like simple or fundamental. But again, I was a kid. I didn't know any better. This was all new to me. The first thing that helped me, in addition, I guess you could say the salt thing technically was the first thing, but that was just a management of symptoms. That wasn't a resolution of any symptoms. If I ate salt, I would still have the vertigo. The first thing that reduced any symptoms, like truly reduced it, I just started eating all organic with a little bit less sugar. I said, all right, well, Here's the quality of our foods terrible. I was starting to research that and get into that online. Like you mentioned, it's actually wonderful. I mean, you can get a lot of misinformation online, but the fact of the matter is you can hear other people's stories. You can do your own research. It's really cool. And so I ate organic. I said, I'm going to do this for just for 30 days. This is super expensive. It should do something in 30 days to show me if I'm going in the right direction or not. 
And I had severe cystic acne for a lot of my late teen years and early adulthood. And that probably got 70% better in a month. And now remember, I'm not doing any specific diet. There's no gluten restriction. There's no dairy restriction. It's not that I can't eat meat. It's not that I only eat meat. I just changed the quality of the food and tried to be more conscious of sugar. That was it. And when I did that, I started to have more energy in that month. I started to find myself, like I said, the skin got a lot better. And that was all I needed. I actually, unfortunately, still probably felt and looked worse than most people out there. But what I needed at that time wasn't a perfect solution. I needed hope. (laughs) I needed something to show me that if I actually take the time to research this stuff, if I take the time to put all this effort in and make these sacrifices that you know, you and I were off air together and we got to see each other. I don't know you that well, but you seem like a younger person yourself. This is not particularly cool to be doing in your 20s or even 30s. So it was new. And I'm like, if I'm going to make these sacrifices, I want to make sure that this is worth it. And that gave me the hope that I needed. So Institute for Integrative Nutrition was great. I mean, I just kind of learned more dietary theories there and I experimented with dairy-free and all that stuff. But when I got into the world of FDN, Functional Diagnostic Nutrition, That's when I got to apply the lab testing side. And FDN takes this, it's not a cookie cutter approach because the protocols are very individualized. But when we utilize lab testing, we actually start with the same foundational labs. It doesn't matter if you came to FDN with cystic acne. It doesn't matter if you came with severe mental health issues. It doesn't matter if you came with autoimmunity. We start with these foundational labs because these are the labs that are going to look at the systems in the body that are most likely to be out of whack when someone is chronically ill. You will not find someone who is chronically ill that does not have imbalanced hormones. You will not find someone who is chronically ill that does not have gut issues. And almost always, you won't find someone who's chronically ill that hasn't developed food sensitivities or has issues with detoxification. So we actually look at that as these like blanket labs, basically, to start everyone off. And so now I have these labs being ran on me. And the only thing that my Western medicine doctor did, and I always want to disclaim this because obviously anyone listening to this show, they wouldn't know me or my story. I'm not against Western medicine at all. It has saved my mom's life. It saved my life probably. But the approach that they take is not particularly great for chronic illness. And so with that said, they only ever looked at blood work and my blood work looked quote unquote normal. Well, the labs that I did with FDN did not look normal, my friend. My hormones were tanked. I had a parasite. I had bacterial overgrowth that was terrible. My detox, detoxification pathways were not optimized or not working the way that they should. I wasn't breaking down my nutrients properly. When you looked at the labs from an FDN perspective, it was more or less, oh, no wonder you feel like crap. This is obvious. How could anyone feel good with this stuff? So those were, you know, I'll pause for a second, but that was another big breakthrough for me. I was having someone for the first time show me objectively why I didn't feel good for, I was, I was 21 when I went through FDN and I'm 28 now. Up until then, so from five to 21, 16 years, not one person ever that I worked with could tell me why I felt bad. FDN was the first place that showed me things right away. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting when you take such a root cause approach to it and also just look at labs, you know, test don't guess is like something that a lot of people say. And I totally agree with. But also, even if you do testing, say you go through the typical doctor method, there's so much almost like convincing that you need to do to say, hey, 
I want my thyroid tested and I don't just want T3. I want T4 and TSH and reverse T4 and all of these different things. And so you really have to be an advocate for yourself. And it, it makes sense that there's programs there that are out there now that give you all those labs that you can work with somebody who says, yeah, I totally believe you. Let's do all of these tests to take a look at what's really going on and then make assessments and judgments and some sort of protocol to help you. It's just such a smarter way to go about it when you're looking at chronic illness. And it's very validating, right? You just talked about the belief side. Many people that are going through this, and this is actually especially true for women, I always reference this study in podcasts, and I got to pull this damn thing up so I don't misquote it. But there was um, some type of study done where it actually showed that women are more likely to be dismissed by doctors, and it does not matter if the doctor is male or female. That's what the crazy part is. So what I mean is a woman might walk in with autoimmunity because that, well, that's something I'm very passionate about, but autoimmunity is also a subset of diseases that the symptoms, depending on what kind of autoimmune disease you have, can look like so many other things that it's very easy to sweep it under the rug. And so just to have our clients get validated, it's amazing. Like you'll be going over labs with someone that you kind of know in the back of your head look terrible, and they're the happiest you've seen them so far on these client calls. And you're like, why are you so happy? And you realize, oh, well, duh. It's because I'm the first person that ever said, one, I believe you enough to work with you. And two, this is why you feel bad. So, you know, maybe for the lay person that doesn't feel bad, looking at their labs and realizing they're not that great wouldn't be beneficial. But for someone that's been feeling like crap for 10 years and has been invalidated multiple times by Western medicine, you show them the worst lab results in the world. They're like hugging you saying, thank you so much. I can't wait to do something about this. Right. So it's, it's validating in addition. Absolutely. And yeah, that's a very interesting study, especially because the doctors were men and women. You know, we've heard it before where a lot of the time it's easy to dismiss women and, and just say, you know, go on birth control or like, here's some quick pill, quick fix. But the fact that there's other women doing that as well to women patients is like hard to hear. But that's why as well, natural health and, you know, different ways of healing are really gaining so much popularity in society now is because we are looking outside of the norms. And I know something that you talk about and advocate a lot for is this idea, which you kind of alluded to, of becoming an advocate for yourself and moving from victim to victor. And this is such a hard shift for a lot of people. I see this in my own clients and I see this in my parents, actually, who have, you know, different health issues and have had health issues for years and, and kind of, there's not, there's kind of a lack of responsibility there, to be honest. And I'm just curious, like, how do you educate people to make that shift? Like, how do you even start if you just think, yeah, I've had, you know, arthritis for 10 years and I don't know, it's just genetic. That's how it is. Like, how, how do we switch that thinking? Well, this is where the hat of personal development and motivational speaker Ev comes in, right? Because like I had mentioned in the story, you guys might have actually picked this up. I got into a group that was personal development focused before I ever touched any of this health stuff. So that actually came, I mean, shortly before, but it came before I started studying health. And one of the books that I read, I mean, I read many, but one of the books that I read was The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And it was the first time that I had the idea of fault versus responsibility laid out for me. And so I was always trying to be defensive. I, I wouldn't say that I was doing it consciously, but I was always being defensive in the sense that I couldn't accept 
that the things that were happening to me in my life were my fault. I mean, I, I didn't have a normal teenage hood, if you'll call it that, right? Like young adulthood. I wasn't able to really relate to people in the same way because I felt so bad. I got this. I mean, every kid has acne for the most part, like they break out, but it was humiliating levels of it. I just felt like crap. I was angry. I'm doing these drugs. It wasn't normal. And I wanted to blame the world. I kept asking, like, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. All my friends are talking about the colleges that they're going to. I'm failing out of 11th grade and I'm not even a stupid person. I'm actually good at school when I'm healthy, but everything's going badly. And when I read in that book that there's a difference between fault and responsibility, it changed my perspective. So responsibility does not mean that something is your fault. If I'm born and I have certain genetic predispositions that are not particularly useful in today's modern world with all these environmental stressors and toxins that we have, because I do believe there's a genetic predisposition side, but it's really all the environmental stuff and the poor diets and the lack of sleep that are activating these genes more or less. That's not my fault. Of course it's not. It's not a five-year-old's fault that their family's feeding them gluten because they don't know that it's a sensitivity for them. And they didn't ask to have these genes that actually cause these issues with certain things. Like I said, in our environment, that's not my fault. But what it is, is it's my responsibility to get better. It's my responsibility to take the action and do the research and start studying this stuff. And I really developed, I, I don't want to look at it as like a hardened or hard ass a type of mindset, but I, I did apply that to myself. I started to accept, especially after the whole going to juvie thing and getting arrested. I'm like, you know what, dude, no one's coming to save you. Mommy and daddy can't bail you out of every little thing that you're doing in your life. You got to figure this the F out. You got to do something different and get your life together. And so that part doesn't necessarily need to be applied to people because maybe they look at that as too, as too hard. But the way I would pose it to someone in a more gentle way is what is your other option? What's your other option? If you're dealing with a chronic illness that's not necessarily your fault and you refuse to take personal responsibility for it, and you haven't gotten help for, let's say, 10 years with arthritis, like you were mentioning, what's the alternative? It's not working when you go to the doctors. The only option is to take personal responsibility for what you can. Say, you know what? I didn't ask for this. No one would ask for this. But what can I do differently that would lead me to better results? Or sometimes it helps Brittany to, I find at least, to separate ourselves and put us in the third person. So I started asking, all right, if Evan, me, of course, if Evan wanted to be someone who was going to do something with his life and not just be known as a high school, like technically on paper, this is terrible. I both am, have been expelled from a school and dropped out of the school district. So I have both of those wonderful accolades on paperwork. If I was going to act like someone who was going to get his shit together and get things moving, what would that person do? If I was going to act like someone who was going to get their health under control, what would that person do? And sometimes if we act like that and we talk about the third person or we act like we're giving a friend or family member advice, that can sometimes separate the emotions that are very strong with these types of things because it's hard to hear sometimes that, wow, you know, it's not my fault that I got arrested and all this stuff, but dude, you played a huge role in what happened to you and getting kicked out of school. In fact, if it wasn't for your poor way of dealing with the circumstances that you were in, you certainly would have never gotten kicked out of school. So it's emotional and it's hard to accept these things about our life. That's why that third person thing can help. So remember the differences between personal responsibility and fault. Something cannot be your fault while it's still your responsibility to fix it. And then 
separate it. Use a third person perspective. Use a friend or family member perspective and ask what would they do if they were trying to solve this problem? Those are two things that I think can be, to answer your question, very useful in the beginning. That's how we can get started with this new lens of personal responsibility in our life. Yeah, I I love that. And I think it's good to just think about how do we switch up the narrative and how do we, yeah, like you said, how do we just move to a place of taking responsibility and then taking action as well. So I, I see this a lot of kind of just like what I said of, you know, Hey, I have this, like this diagnosis, whatever it might be. I'm just going to accept that, that I'm going to have this for the rest of my life and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to complain about it potentially, but I'm not going to look at different ways of healing it or try to put it into remission where a lot of the things that you actually can put into remission, especially when they're autoimmune disease so or autoimmune disease related. So it's interesting to just hear about actual tools that you can like employ every single day to make that switch in your mentality. And I know that mental health is such a big topic for you. And you actually go around and talk to students about this, which is a very unique thing to do, to be honest. Like, I don't think I ever had that in school where I had someone come in and talk about mental health. So I would love to just kind of hear about that. What is that like for you? And what are you kind of seeing in the younger generations in high school or even younger, like in terms of mental health? Like, what are they struggling with that maybe the audience listening to this is doesn't understand or or hasn't struggled with? Yeah. And it is unique. It is one of the biggest blessings I've ever experienced in my life to be able to do it. It is the only thing that I've ever done that doesn't feel like work at all. And I mean, when we're doing podcasts like this, this is fun, right? And I'm sure, I mean, no one's making you do this. This is something that you want to do, but there's still like a one out of 10 where you're like, all right, I, you know, get this guy off of here. Like, I don't want to talk to him for seven hours straight. That is, I do not experience that with that job. And so to answer your question about what I've seen with kids, because you know, I've spoken to a lot of kids, it was like 550 professional presentations so far, 50,000 kids around the country, um, only in America, to be clear. And what I'm seeing is there's been a huge shift since I was in school. I remember that when I was 15, no one was talking about anxiety or depression. I remember one time we had a gentleman come in and I was in a really nice school district. One time we had a gentleman come in and he talked about suicide. And that's very important. We should have people coming in and talking about that as well. But that was it. There wasn't anything deeper with what's going on under the surface that even leads to someone attempting suicide or completing suicide. In terms of depression, I mean, untreated depression is the number one cause of suicide attempts and uh, people actually completing and taking their own life. So that was never talked about. I was dealing with symptoms that were not necessarily suicidal ideations. I had some of that on and off, but most of it was panic attacks, generalized anxiety, major depressive disorder, and no one came in and shared that. So when I go into the schools now, first of all, what's interesting is the respect. Like you kind of expect kids to screw around and not shut their mouth and be jerks when they're in there. But the only time that ever happens is if they don't even let me get a word in to begin with. There's a very small fraction of schools that the kids, they're there to give you hell, right? And you're 30 seconds into the presentation and they're going off on you. Once I'm four or five minutes in and they're actually shutting up and listening, the interruptions stop. The outbursts stop. When they realize what I'm talking about, all of a sudden the, you know, unpopular kids, they're listening. The athletes are listening. The popular kids are listening. The band kids are listening. And what that implies to me, Brittany, or what it 
directly shows even is that all of these kids are being directly or indirectly affected by these mental health issues nowadays because kids do not listen to people that they don't want to listen to. They don't listen to things that don't relate to them. If When I was going in even before the pandemic, I had a much harder time some, da- some days with the kids. Like it was like, all right, you know, maybe it's a 50-50, you get a great presentation one day just because the kids are super respectful and the next day it's a total miss. After I started going back in first year of the pandemic, that number 50-50, like schools being good versus bad, went to 95% schools being good and 5% being bad. And so you know that all of these kids are being affected. And then not to mention, some of them will tell you directly, I would have never had the guts to go up to someone after they came and spoke in my school for any topic. Now you'll have 20, 30 kids coming up in an assembly, all sharing a story that is so specific. And this is one of the things to answer your question that I want people to know. The stories are so specific. There is no way these kids are faking. Because what I see in a lot of parents of this generation, you know, maybe people 40 years old or beyond, they don't get it and not through any fault of their own. They didn't have the same prevalence of mental health issues. Yes, kids had mental health issues back when they were kids, but it wasn't at the same rates by any stretch of the imagination. Not to mention there was a stigma around it. So you couldn't really see how many people were dealing with it. So now when their kid comes home and describes what is like textbook panic disorder, they think the kid is just being dramatic or they think it's the stress of normal teenagehood. Uh, They don't understand that this is really an epidemic amongst our youth. And again, I know these kids can't be faking it because they're describing things that are so damn specific. You would have either had to research this on your own and make up a story or you're actually dealing with it. And I think what we're seeing, a lot of people know this nowadays, it's kind of obvious. The pandemic hit all of us. I mean, even the adults were not feeling good. It absolutely hit our youth. But there were people like me dealing with mental health issues long before the pandemic ever happened. So what else is going on? Well, we're using our kids as a science experiment. We're feeding them crap food. We're locking them in boxes with high amounts of tech all day, like nothing in terms of strength compared to Well, I said that kind of weird. How I want to reword that is the tech that we're using in schools today, like they're getting blasted with strong screens and phones and extra EMF. That was nowhere near the amount that our parents were getting hit with 20, 30, 40 years ago. There was nothing like that. So you have that. You have the social media aspect. You have the fact that kids are staying up till two in the morning now because there's something to do. There was nothing to do freaking 40 years ago, right? I'm guessing you got and went to bed and the stats are very clear. Um, kids under the age of 18 that stay up past 12 a.m. are 24% more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health issue, uh, namely depression. And we just said depression untreated is the number one cause of suicide and suicidal ideation, right? So that's one of the things that I'm seeing in the schools is just it is beyond widespread. It's really good in one sense that the stigma is lessening because of the amount of mental health issues that we're seeing. But this is a time of their life that they have incredible amounts of pressure on them. They're being told if they don't go to college that they're never going to make anything of themselves. They're being told that if they don't do well in school, life's basically over, right? And now it's hard enough to deal with school. You kind of have to be pretty smart to manage it as it is. But then you add these mental health issues in. And my gosh, man, I just have so much empathy for the young people that are going through the school system nowadays. They don't realize you can't see it until you get to your 20s. That no, just because you didn't nail it in high school and middle school, it does not mean your life is over, man. I am a technical, technically speaking, high school dropout who was kicked out of school, one and a half semesters of community college. That was it. 
And I speak all around the country and have jobs that I love. So your life's not over just because of that. I wish more people saw that too, including the parents. Yeah, I actually remember having like those thoughts of being in high school and thinking like the world is going to end if X, Y, and Z happened. And it's just because you're in this this bubble and you're in this friend group and everyone kind of lives close to each other. And it's it's just, there's so many factors that kind of go into that. Whereas when you go to university or you don't go to university, maybe you start working somewhere, you travel, it's just suddenly like your, you know, your perspective is so broadened. But high school specifically, man, that, oh, it's so hard to step out of that. And then on top of that, you have things like technology in your face all the time. You have social media, which brings a host of problems that are I couldn't even imagine dealing with social media at the age of 13 as a young girl. Like I have, I just don't know how like specific uh, girls and boys, but specifically, like, I don't know how girls on social media kind of handle that. Like the pressure, the comparison, the eating disorders that can come from it, the mental health struggles. Like there's so many things wrapped up in it. And I worry for our future generations of how we're going to manage it. So for the people listening who have kids, and you know maybe they're in elementary school or maybe they are in high school what type of signs can they kind of look for if maybe they they're worried that their kid might be struggling with anxiety or depression like what what do you kind of see from your perspective because you have such a unique perspective of going into these schools and and doing these talks like what do you see or what do you what can people look for that might be like the triggers for these issues well one thing i will say before i mean this isn't really a perfect answer to your question. But one thing I would say is until you can 100% prove otherwise, believe your kid when they say something's going on. Because a lot of these issues stem from the parents sometimes. It's crazy. Like, And again, because they have genuine ignorance. So it's not really their fault either. I'm kind of someone who can see all sides of things or at least attempt to. So like, I feel bad for the parents. I feel bad for the kids. But one thing I would say is just believe them until you have a legitimate medical reason not to, like a doctor has cleared them or a you know, psychotherapist has cleared them. So that's the first thing. With that said, in terms of, you know, what to watch out for trigger wise, if they, if something has changed significantly in the schedule for them or the routine for them or the friend group, look out for that. There's a part of this that is totally natural as a teenager, especially there's, there's some interesting stuff with girls in particular. Cause like, Girls will go after each other from a more social perspective, right? That's why social media, like you said, is a nightmare because we actually know scientifically that women are almost not quite as much, but almost as aggressive as males, but they don't display it in the same way physically. They'll actually destroy someone socially. Whereas like guys, like we literally would beat the crap out of each other in the neighborhood. And then we were friends the same night and we're like, all right, dude, let's go grab like pizza or something together. It's hilarious how that works. And so there's some normal side to a friend group switching. But if something happens where you're like, oh, not only did the friend group switch, I wouldn't really want my kid around these people. Like I wanted them around the other kids that they've been with for five years. And now all of a sudden they're here. Watch out for that. Watch out for changes in sleep patterns. Again, the average teenager is going to want to rebel and stay up late. But my whole thing was I couldn't sleep. I wanted to sleep and I couldn't. So I'm in school staying up till three, four, or even five in the morning sometimes. And then you got to be up at 7 a.m. to go to school. 7 a.m. is probably late, actually. It might even be 6.30 if I remember correctly. And so I'm not sleeping at all. Another thing that can be seen in depression is that kids might sleep way too much. You might actually find a kid that's sleeping like 14 hours a day. 
and they still don't feel well rested. Again, I, I'm going to stop putting these disclaimers on and hope that people have some common sense here. Obviously, teenagers need to sleep a lot too. They are in a growing phase of their life, right? So I wouldn't even say that a kid sleeping 10 hours a day would be something to worry about. But when you're starting to get to that like 12, 14 hour mark, where when it's more of the day than not, that's something to be worried about, especially on a consistent basis. I mentioned that they might switch friend groups. Another thing to look out for is withdrawing from friends completely. Every teenager wants friends. Every teenager wants to hang out with said friends more than they want to hang out with their parents. <laughs> so if they are withdrawing from that and they're staying home just on the computer or watching Netflix or watching YouTube or just playing on their phone all night, there's something going on, man. And maybe they're just getting rejected socially, which is already a risk factor for mental health issues. But maybe it's not a choice. What was happening to me, Brittany, is I was having such severe, I didn't know that they were called this at the time, but panic attacks. That every time my parents would drop me off, the pain in the chest would start. I'd begin hyperventilating. I'd get these stomach aches before my parents even dropped me off at my friend's house. And so we ended up in this cycle of my dad would drive me somewhere and I'd be like, I I can't go anymore. I got to go home. I have a bad stomach ache. Now, my dad is a wonderful person. God bless him. But he he certainly does not understand mental health that well. He understands it's a little better now, but not back then. And so he kept thinking that I was like playing this game with him more or less, where it's like, okay, Ab, did you actually like, were your friends actually meeting up or what's going on, man? Like, come on, you got to tell me this stuff. Like, so now I have the stress there too. So watch out for like, hey, they tried to go out, but now they're back in changes in diet, you know, eating beyond excessive amounts or nothing at all. It's the extremes really of almost anything that can be a risk factor. So whether it's eating habits, sleep habits. Um, This is true across the board. I know this is more of a holistically focused podcast, but whether we're taking the holistic perspective or not, this is how kids display some of these symptoms. Um, So I'd watch out for that. And the final one is if your kid is smart, school is their thing. And that, that was true for me. And I don't mean that in a bragging way. I was certainly not good at sports. I always make a joke that all the juice from my brain went from the sports side to the school side. I went from an A and B student my entire life effortlessly to failing classes in 10th and 11th grade to the point that I ended up, when I got kicked out of high school, I had a 1.8 cumulative GPA, almost all of which was from 10th and 11th grade because my grades were nearly perfect the rest of my life. So that's something to watch out for too. When those grades just tank and it doesn't make sense, uh, that's another thing to watch out for. So there's like six things for you. I think those are just such good suggestions. Honestly, like watching for changes in patterns of behavior is really smart and being an observant parent as much as you can. And mind you, like I am not a parent yet. So this is totally, there's asterisks everywhere with this, but it just makes sense whether you're sleeping more, sleeping less or friend groups or changes in academics and how they're performing in school as well, or even in sports and wanting to show up or not show up. Like that's such a good indicator that hey, something's going on deep inside that they probably haven't vocalized to you. And you have to create a safe space for them to be able to talk to you about it. And I I don't know. I don't know if it might be getting better now because mental health is far less taboo than it used to be. So there, there's likely a, probably a new wave of parents who are creating a safe space to be able to talk about mental health. But I'm not sure if the current teenagers have the parents that are doing that. Maybe. But I I think that will come right now with people having kids today, millennials and that type of thing, because we certainly didn't have that necessarily. Like there was a little bit of it of 
you know, very obvious things like, oh, you're crying. Okay, what's wrong? But not necessarily like, how are you coping with this? What do you have social anxiety? I noticed that you don't look people in the eyes. Like, what's going on? You know, like just those types of conversations are things that I personally didn't have. I know my husband didn't either. So it, it's just interesting to hear. Yeah, I, I just think about this a lot as someone who is planning to have kids soon as well of like, what can I do to create a safe space so my kids' mental health is really supported from day one? That's excellent. I love, uh, they're going to be very lucky to have you guys if you're already into this stuff. You know, yeah. like super healthy babies walking around. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just want to also flip the script a little bit. For those people listening who maybe are, you know, 30s or and 20s, 40s, whatever, and their parents, they can see mental health issues in their parents. And I've, I've been through this. My husband's been through this. What do you recommend for that? Because that is so different from, Hey, I'm your parent. I'm going to take away your phone for your mental health. I'm going to make sure you sleep better, whatever. But when you're the kid and your parent, you can see kind of these depressive things that they might be doing. What can you do when there's that? power dynamic. And also they don't understand mental health as we do. And like, for example, my husband's parents, they don't listen to the show, so it's fine. But uh, they, you know, the idea of therapy is a joke to them, right? Like they, they think, oh, nothing's wrong. Why would we go? But we see, you know, we understand that there's stuff going on with his mom and she kind of has a bit of depression, in, like signs and symptoms in the last couple of years. But she doesn't think it's a wrong enough to go to therapy. So it's like, how do you, how do you bridge those those gaps and try to get them to understand? I guess. Wow, what a good question. I'll tell you the same thing that I guess I would tell students that ask me this because they ask like, how do I get my parents to believe me? Whatever. Now, I guess I I get that that's a different question, but it's at least conceptually similar. I would love to be the speaker. I'd love to be the podcaster that can come in and. You know, give the most amazing advice in the world and answer everyone's questions. I, I, I think it would be very arrogant and ignorant of me to act like there's a one size fits all answer to this. I'm a realist, and there are some people that will go to the grave never having worked on this stuff. It's not right. It's not fair. But that's what it is. Now, with that said, are there any people who have ever made that shift even at an older age? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I actually saw that in my own mom. And so I can only tell you from personal experience how this worked. My mom was dealing with, as you guys know, a lot of health issues. And that bled into some mental health stuff that wasn't her fault. Like it wasn't mine, but it was becoming severe and it was greatly impacting our relationships. And so it started out how most people would start this out, right? Basic suggestions like, hey, would you be willing to do this? Or would you look at that? And um, that didn't happen. And what I did is something that Many people might not be willing to do, but again, I give straightforward answers and I, I tell you the truth. There was a point where it was so bad that I disconnected myself from the relationship. And that was for about a seven, eight month, eight, seven or eight month period at around, I don't know, 22 or 23 years old, where I was like, this is not healthy. There is absolutely 0% willingness to progress in any positive direction. I mean, it's one thing if someone's working on stuff, right? I, I thank God that I had people that stuck with me while I was working through stuff. That, there's something to be said about that. But I can't blame anyone for not being in my life anymore when I was at my worst. Because in that, it sounds so funny because it's like a kid, but it really was bad. Like at 17, 18, I was just, 
I was a tornado that was coming through and you better watch out. And there's nothing that you're doing to stop a tornado, right? All you can do is run away from it, I guess. And if that's happening, I think we need to normalize saying, hey, this is hurting me right now. And I'm not wrong. If I'm, if I'm asking the tornado nicely to stop and the tornado is not stopping and they're not willing to change, you're not a bad person for saying, well, you know what? The, I'm going to get the hell away from this right now. And I'll leave that door open. I'll, I'll let it know. Hey, if you want to stop hurting me and this relationship, a hundred percent, let's get back to it. And the second that you're willing to do that, I'm willing to do that. But until then, this is, this is completely counterproductive. This isn't helping anyone. And those were a rough seven to eight months. There wasn't a lot of progress during that time. And then all of a sudden there was. And my mom was very willing to work with an FDN practitioner. I didn't think it was a good idea to work with me because I mean, it's never a good idea to work with family in those situations anyway. But we also just needed to separate our emotions from the situation. So it was good to have someone else. And she went to therapy for five years and ended up getting an incredible amount of benefit from that. It's, it's a changed person. You know, she's, it, it's one thing to go back to a baseline. She went to so far above average with how she helps situations that she ends up you know, playing pseudo therapist with many people in her life at the place that she works because she just has so many useful insights and tips and empathy for other people. So, you know, sometimes the toughest decisions are the right ones. And Brittany, we also need to recognize here that I could have made that decision and my parents could have said F off and nothing ever changed, right? That's a risk that was there. And so I, I don't mean this in a pessimistic way for people or to try to deter them from what I did, but I think to act like there's a one size fits all answer to that is asinine. There are some hardened people that are 60 years plus and they are never going to change. And that's just, that's the reality of life. But the other side of life is, you know, some people when they're confronted with a new thing, like a new level of pain and there's pain and not talking to your kid that can, that can get people moving. And so it worked out beautifully for me. I know it won't work out that way for anyone, but if or everyone, but if that helps even one person, then I, I hope that's a good enough answer. Yeah, I I love that and I love the honesty in that in that you know there's different approaches for everybody. I think that's really smart. I think as well something that's so important to recognize here if you're in this situation is that your own mental health should take priority. So if there's so much strain or stress in that relationship, maybe taking a step back for yourself is what you need to do in order to show up better in the future. And help them show up better one day as well. So it's just remembering that. And the only other, you know, piece of advice I sure, I guess I could add to this is that something that I have found has been effective with my own folks has been leading by example. And it took me a very long time to actually realize this because in the beginning of my health journey, I would almost kind of just preach, you know, like, oh, you should be eating organic and oh, you should be exercising every day and just verbally saying these things. And then I just started living it and just stopped telling them. And then what ended up happening was they would start asking me questions over time. Like, hey, I noticed that your hair has grown really long. What are you doing? Oh, I like switched to non-toxic shampoos and I'm kind of cleaning up like different things that could be disrupting my hormones, which leads to hair growth. Like, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the example is. And now with, in terms of mental health, I go to therapy. My husband does. We also started marital counseling for the first time. Not that we have issues, but just for this idea of being proactive. And I'm very open with them about it. 
And now they both go to therapy separately. But it's because I took this approach of, hey, this is what we're doing. You can go, but like, let me just tell you about the benefits. Okay, great. So now I have a safe space to talk about what's going on in my life. I have someone who is professionally trained who can kind of guide me through these really big life stages that I'm going through. And I just explain the benefits and then they kind of make the decision for themselves. So this idea of being an example, explaining the benefits and then stepping back has really worked for me. Again, not one size fits all, but that's also what I would just add. This has been such a enlightening podcast episode. And I know that my guests or my guests, my listeners will definitely get a lot out of this. If they want to work with you or listen to your podcast and learn more, where can they do that and how can they connect with you? Yeah, thank you for having me. So we have kind of two different things here. I have a business that I do with my fiance, and that is where we actually work as FDN practitioners. So it's separate from FDN itself. And you can find us at Bucks, B-U-C-K-S, BucksCountyLightTherapy.com. We actually have an in-person business, but we take clients remotely as well. So you can check us out there. And then the podcast, I actually ended up doing that for uh, the same company I got certified with. So we are just about to hit episode 300, which is amazing. It is called The Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. And you can easily find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're very excited to do another 300 of those. Nice. I love that. That's awesome. I will link that in the show notes and put it on my website so people can find you nice and easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on my podcast today. This was wonderful and I'm excited for everyone to just learn from you. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biohacking with Brittany. If you're interested in finding the show notes or the sponsors for this episode, you can do so on my website, which is biohackingbrittany.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram where I'm most active. My handle is at biohackingbrittany. And if you're interested in working together and you want to email me directly, you can do that. My email is info at biohackingbrittany.com. And I look forward to hearing from you and having you tune in next week.